Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Let me tell you about one of my favorite tools right now. It's actually a whole suite of tools from the team over at Ahrefs called Webmaster Tools. It's almost too good to be true, but you can sign up for a free account and use it to find tangible ways you can get more search traffic for any site that you own. Listen, every marketer and entrepreneur should have an account and know how to take advantage of all the data and insights you'll get. They've been generous enough to sponsor this podcast to let you know about this new free tool, and there's literally no reason to not sign up for any of the sites that you own. So check it out at ahrefs.com A-W-T, and let me know what you think. On the show today is Kevin Lee. Kevin is the VP of Marketing at Poly and was previously the VP of Marketing at Buffer. I wanted to bring Kevin on because Kevin helped Buffer scale from 5 million in revenue all the way past 20 million in revenue. Buffer is really a pioneer for transparency and the open startups movement. They're also an amazing case study on content marketing with three different publications and two podcast series. You'll hear about how they leverage engineering as marketing with projects like Stories Creator, Remix, and Pablo, leadership lessons from growing and managing a team with radical transparency, and his process for finding and evaluating new jobs. So to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think that you would be doing marketing for a living? <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> um, I think I had an aversion to marketing, if I remember right, growing up. I really kind of conflated marketing and advertising. It just seemed like trying to get people to spend money on things they didn't know they wanted to spend money on before, which um, is somewhat true, maybe. <laughs> maybe there's, there's a bit right. of truth to that. Yeah. Um, no, I went to school for journalism, and so I thought, you know, storytelling sports reporting. That was kind of more the, the path that I saw for myself. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, where, where did that desire come from? Was that something you like always had from a childhood or, um, did that sort of just like come about, you know, when you got a little bit older and you had to, you know, you're forced to choose, okay, what am I going to major in or what kind of <laughs> life path am I going to go down? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think in high school, I found that I best expressed myself through writing. And so very grateful for some writing teachers that I had in high school and loved it. I loved the creativity of it. I loved the, the problem solving of how do you, how do you express this thing on your mind to someone else so that they can see in, kind of inside your brain in that way. Hmm. And I started my own school newspaper in high school, which was super fun to get to create something. And of course, lots of writing involved in that. And so, yeah, I just thought, you know, I could do this for a living. I read like the back page of Sports Illustrated and was like, oh man, I could write one article a month and be set and like of course there's a much longer path to get to writing the back back page of sports illustrated than that but that was very appealing to me i think at that age hmm. yeah that's interesting so you managed you mentioned that you uh majored in journalism that was sort of your foray so how then did you make the jump from journalism to the dark side and to marketing? <laughs> yeah i was kind of forced into it so um i shouldn't say forced there were a couple factors one of them the forcing function was just the newspaper industry was changing a lot when I came out of school. And so uh, fewer jobs, a bit, a bit less optimism for kind of that, that whole thing. And so that was one aspect of it. I think the more I learned about what life was going to be like in journalism, the more I realized it might not be the life I wanted, you know, working hmm. on 2 a.m. deadlines five nights a week and just a very different type of lifestyle. And so all those factors kind of came together and, and made me rethink the direction. And I think fortunately what I love about journalism is the storytelling 
aspect. And one of the things that I found very true of marketing is there's also a storytelling aspect there. And so I think that was kind of the, the common bond between the two for me. Hmm. But you did have a stint in journalism. I, I was sort of taking a peek back at your LinkedIn and you had also mentioned in sort of our conversation before this, um, that you sort of had a, a stint in it and you were, you know, managing a blog. Could you walk me through sort of what that experience was? It was at, it was with Vox, right? Is that correct? It was with Fox. Yeah. Yeah. So my initial foray into journalism was through sports reporting. So I, w- I wrote for some newspapers initially. Huh. And then um, as I was kind of going through that transition, I started a blog. It was about, I uh, started it from scratch. It was about a local sports team here and grew it decently sized and it got acquired by Vox. And so I got to be part of their, their oh, early wow. network on the sports side. And um, yeah, just super exciting. I, I think one of the things I really appreciate about that time was it was kind of the wild west of content marketing. And so I could learn so much so fast by just playing around with this, this community and blog that I started. And so that was, it really showed me what was possible when you can take something to scale, some of the the levers to do that, some of the ways to do that. And yeah, I, I think it hooked me a little bit into the, you know, how can I take that and apply those lessons elsewhere? Hmm. So walk me, I mean, I'm curious, just, uh, you mentioned it's the wild west like what was it like growing a blog that eventually would get acquired by vox i mean vox is a large sort of reputable company it was also i i would assume that there was a decent amount of traffic and subscribers and it was sort of a, a successful blog like how did that happen <laughs> i guess it feels like the wild west because i i didn't have a plan going into mm-hmm. it i was just like i'm going to make this thing that i like and i assume others will like it too and so um it felt it, it didn't feel organized at first. I think it, it got to a place where it was more organized. So it was coming up with a content calendar from scratch. And, and I think this idea you hear about it nowadays, like different swim lanes or different content types or even pillar content. I think that there was no language for that, you know, 15 years ago. And so that was me just kind of creating that on my own. And, you know, it was, we did these silly things called blog bets where, you know, we'd bet on the outcome of a game. And if one team won, I would write for, their blog and if, if my team won they would write for ours and so it was like guest posting but like a really hacky weird roundabout way of guest posting and so you know exposing yourself to other audiences tons and tons of, of volume i wrote on the blog and so that gave me a chance to experiment with headlines experiment with distribution and all these different strategies and yeah it was just like a total sandbox at the time and very low risk initially because it was just you know this fun thing i didn't know what it would become um and then fortunately, once you have that community behind you, it still feels fun and, and you can still take risks and they have lots of forgiveness if the risks fail and things like that. Mm-hmm. Was that so is that was something that you worked on on the side and then eventually went full time on it? I never got to full time on it. No, really? No, it was always always a side hustle. Yeah. Hmm. But then eventually you, you joined Vox after that acquisition. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Then it came under the okay. umbrella. Yep. Okay, exactly. so then that's sort of when it became like the the full time gig, or was more, it still part time with Vox? Yeah, it was more of a real thing then. Um, like the pay was more consistent. Um, I was still. It was like a like two different paths, so the Vox path and then like the a formal office path because I was too too afraid to like go all in on that on the digital side of things. Um, I'm not anymore fully remote for quite a long time now, but like at the time it was it's like is this a real thing? And so. I did kind of have like two different directions that I was heading on. Hmm. How did you get traffic and like, how did you actually grow the blog? I mean, especially back then it was, was it, you know, um, a lot of social media and SEO and was it a lot of the same things that you would, you know, that you do today or were they a lot different? I mean, you mentioned the, uh, 
the, the sports bets and the blog bets, which was, you know, pretty interesting. Was it things like that that really drove some of the growth or was it just sort of your tried and true normal paths? It was not tried and true or normal or best, best practice at all. Um, so I, if I were to, to think back, I think the, the biggest things I would credit for the growth was having an original take and an original voice on this place that didn't have, didn't have commentary in the way that I was providing commentary into that space. Um, and so that was one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is sports is a very communal industry. And so, you know, if you get into the right pockets of fan bases, it can spread um, very organically through those, those spots. And so that might look like forums or different communities. Um, it, it wasn't so much social media driven back then, but I imagine it would be similar to like, if you get traction in a subreddit today or something like that, where you just have kind of this, this built-in amplification network if you're speaking their language and, and doing good quality work. And so I think it was kind of a mix of the voice, the quality, and then finding the right early advocates to to help spread spread word for you. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious if you can tell me a time of like something you did there that you were like really proud of. Like thinking back on it, like what's the thing where you're just like, not like a, an achievement or an accolade necessarily, but something that you were really proud of walking away from it. Yeah, that's such a good question. There's, I mean, I have a lot of like silly memories from it. So I was invited to go on the local news once and be like a talking head on a, on a sports debate show, which um, I'm not a very confrontational person by nature. So I don't know if I did very well. I wasn't invited <laughs> back, which might be a sign of that. Um, got to do some radio gigs, which is super fun. Got flown down to Dallas, like the, the Cowboy Stadium for a Nike uniform reveal which was very bizarre to me that they would fly bloggers down to this this thing i think it happened it was like early event marketing is kind of what it seemed like back in the day um i got to make my own custom nike shoes which were um in the team colors and had my name on them and i they just sitting up in my closet i never wear them because i'm afraid of getting them dirty but it's like a, a fun memento from that that season of life so it was, i guess the the things i took away from that was um, a lot of the experiences, I, I also ran the site with one of my best friends from school. And so just, and, and we lived in different states. And so just these connections that it formed and helped me maintain was, I guess, almost as important to me as like what happened in terms of traffic or getting acquired or any of these other aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So then the next step for you was to go to Buffer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, Buffer at the time, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts, I'm curious sort of what your perspective was like, but I would imagine it was, you know, it's really young, early startup. They were also sort of just, uh, I'm not sure if, if they were doing the transparency stuff before you got there or if sort of that was something that you helped pioneered or that they did after you joined, but what was your initial impression? Like why join a company like Buffer? Yeah. So the role that I applied for initially was content creator. And so it was this like very much in line with the the blog I had built and the Vox role and and just this content content direction. So that was what appealed to me initially. I was like, oh wow, I could write full time for this this like tech company. And uh, I don't think there was a lot of similar roles back then. I think content was not as competitive and and busy as it is now. And so it was somewhat unique. Uh, Buffer was fully remote when I applied, so that was another draw to it. I'm based in Boise, Idaho, and there's not a lot of tech companies here. There's not a big tech scene here. And so if I wanted to get into tech, which I, I did, seeing what Vox was able to do, seeing what 
technology can accomplish at scale. I think that was really appealing to me. And so, yeah, Buffer was already doing the transparency stuff. I was so new to startups. I didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar to ask like, oh, how do you get users? How healthy is the business? What, what kind of revenue are you doing? <laughs> I was just like, I can write full time and work wherever I want. And, and I think something else that appealed to Buff, about Buffer was this company based on values. And so work for this company that aligned with how I want to be in the world. Mm-hmm. It was enough to hook me in. And then it was just a, uh, such an education once I joined on all these things I didn't even know I didn't know at first. Right, right. So talk, talk to me a little bit about the transparency because um, that was something I think Buffer was probably like the the big sort of driver of the whole transparency movement and other companies doing it. As you know, I used to be the head of growth there at Bearmetrics and so Bearmetrics had a, a part in that with the open startups movement and you know with Bearmetrics sharing all the metrics publicly as well. Um, what, what was that like being in it sort of pushing it forward, um, uh, making it a strategy, if you will. Yeah, it is interesting. I think maybe from being in it. So I credit a lot of what I've learned in marketing and in, in SaaS and, and tech from Buffer's transparency. So when I was, when I joined, we had transparent email. So every email that was sent within the company could be seen by everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just like ate that up. It was amazing to be able to see like every email that the CEOs, CEO and co-founder were sending and every email that the product team was sending and all these different areas that I was interested in and, and fascinated by. And I had firsthand insight into the way that they go about their work. It was just, it was just incredible for me. And so I think that's one of the huge things for transparency that I took away was what it can, un- what it can unlock for your team in terms of, you know, if, if folks have drive and curiosity, they, they really soak it in and it's, it leads to high growth potential in kind of everyone that's part of that, that ecosystem. So that was great. I think from an external perspective, we, we sincerely wanted to give back and to share our learnings and to support other startups and companies as they're going through some of the same things that we are going through or will go through or have gone through. And so that was really important to us from a culture perspective and things like sharing your salary transparently, things like sharing revenue transparently, like you, you alluded to. Um, when we did a round of layoffs, a lot of that experience we, we talked about openly. And it, I think it sounds scary when you say it like that, but when you base it on this like foundation of mission and purpose and values, I think it becomes a lot clearer. It's a much easier conversation to have internally. It's not a random thing like, oh yeah, let's show everyone our salaries. It's, you know, we're, we're here to give back and to be part of this larger conversation. And this is the way that we want to participate. Hmm. How, how did you tie that back to, um, like business results and sort of, uh, you know, it being something that is pushing the company forward, like you said, not just a part of who you are. And, um, although of course, like you said, that's sort of like the cornerstone, that's the first piece of it. It's like, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it for these reasons, but it was also, if you're going to keep investing in it and you sort of expanded so much, you know, so widely within the transparency, um, how did, how'd you really tie that back to, okay, this is actually helping the business as well. That's a great question. I kind of want to ask you the same thing. (laughs) Like why, why did you all lean in so hard on it too? I think for us there, the answer that I like to give is that it was an unconventional PR play for us. And so, um, we got a lot of positive press. We got a lot of notoriety for that. And I think it was, 
really interesting to consider in hindsight. It's not social media related really at all. It's it's very different. So I don't know that we ever 100% tied those things together. But what it did enable for us is to differentiate ourselves from other social media businesses out there. And so social media is a very crowded space. So you have your Hootsuites and your Sprout Socials and Later and all these different different apps and tools. And at the end of the day, how are people going to choose between them? And one of the ways, one of our bets was that, you know, being differentiated on the brand side is going to be one of the ways that we win. And so that was really key for us. We looked to measure that in ways like, you know, when someone signs up, there's a sign-up survey. How did you first hear about us? And one of the answers there could be PR or press or blogs or word of mouth, these different aspects. Um, what What's the sentiment like on social media? How much, how many mentions are we getting? We can put some different metrics around that. So there are some metrics we can track back to it, but I think the larger strategic narrative was, you know, we want to differentiate ourselves. We want to be known as a certain type of brand. Um, this is how we're going to go about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can sort of uh, piggyback on, on that, that it was a lot of, uh, differentiator, brand differentiator, trying to build goodwill within a certain community or type of person that that appeals to. I think a lot of it also was um, there was kind of like a tactical, uh, unconventional PR sort of uh, link building strategy almost as well, where it's like, look at what this company's doing, and you know they they link back to you and they're sending traffic your way, and you're also sort of you know building connections and forging, you know these sort of uh, you know relationships on the web, if you will, within different you know sites. And uh, it was even, we, we could see, we could sort of track signups back to certain pages on Bear Metrics. So, you know, uh, when I was the head of growth there, I could see, okay, for all the ones that are listed as an open startup and they're on a Bear Metrics subdomain, you know, how many people are viewing that and then going and signing up for Bear Metrics? And so there was actually a pretty uh, attributable sort of engine there going through it. Uh, but I can imagine it might be a little bit different for you since it was. Um, wasn't exactly the same, but yeah. it's a little yeah. bit more on like the brand awareness, less on the like performance marketing side of things. Yeah, that's great. How funny we we would link everyone to a spreadsheet with all of our salaries. Probably should have turned that into a <laughs> a, a, right. a landing page or something so we could track that a little better in hindsight. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, you, you probably still get the the link back to buffer.com or you know some other sort of blog post announcing it or whatnot. But uh, but yeah, we we found that those types of pages with like data and reports or mm-hmm. some sort of like lists um, really helped to actually be able to track it one, but also to you know build something that was uh, that was building links as well. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious also how the marketing strategy evolved over time because you were with Buffer for quite a long time. I mean, it, was, it was an exceptionally long tenure, especially given a lot of the averages you see in marketing roles. Um, starting off with Buffer re- being really young and, and early on to then being very mature and going through lots of different phases. Um, could you walk me through it? You don't have to give like a timeline per se, but more just like the evolution of the marketing strategy over time. Yeah, for sure. So I joined as employee 17 and we were doing around maybe 2 million in ARR back then. And really the, the moment I joined, we had just pivoted the blog from being known for like life hacking and productivity advice to being known for social media. Or at least that was the, the direction we wanted to go. And so that was one of my first jobs was, you know, spinning up that content machine to take us in that mm-hmm. direction. And a lot of it was category creation. It feels strange to say, but social media for business wasn't really a category back in the day. Like Facebook pages were relatively new and, you know, businesses on Instagram didn't exist in the way they do now. And so there was a lot of that work that needed to be done. We needed to establish ourselves as authorities on these different topics. And so 
the play there was just to go really hard after content creation. It was already a proven validated channel for us. So we want to double down on that. And we were able to successfully do that. As we grew the blog, we shifted a little bit to focus or, or to bring in PRs at a different angle for us. So we have unconventional PR, which was our transparency efforts, our remote efforts, our customer support, even to a degree functioned as unconventional PR for us. But we had more of a formal PR play. And so in the early days, a lot of that was around getting picked up in TechCrunch when we would launch something new or make an announcement. I think we started to tie the the PR and content together in a way that syndication became a really important element for us. So we would take existing content, pitch it to places like Fast Company or Time, Entrepreneur, Inc., and they would pick it up. We get the backlink, we get the exposure, they get great content to serve. And so it was, it was a win-win for everyone. And I think really boosted our domain authority, page rank, all those important metrics. So that was kind of the, the evolution of content. I think as we went along the buffer journey, we also shifted from a maybe a bit more of a traditional like VC-backed company. We raised around when I was early at Buffer. Um, then we shifted to starting to buy back investors and to take matters into our own hands and go down this more sustainable path. And one of the things I'm really grateful for is that these channels we invested in early on, like SEO and content, they fit really well as you're scaling into more of a sustainable path. Like there's not a lot of costs there other than the people costs or the production costs of getting that out the door. Then those, you know, in SEO and content, it, scales sustainably over time in a really healthy and, and great way. And so we never really went the route of performance marketing, um, never did a lot of marketing spend. Our biggest budget was mostly on people and, and tools was really all we would spend on. Um, so that was kind of the the evolution. We, we started from content. Content remains this big foundation for us. But eventually, given that foundation, we were able to spin it off our, our biggest um, source ended up being word of mouth is how people came to find us. And so we would activate that through, through the content, through, we'd measure it through branded search, direct traffic to the site, and then try to further it through community, social media events, um, and just any, any channels that we could think of that, that had some positive brand association with buffer. Hmm. Yeah. What, what were the, the things that you ended up sort of cutting or stopping, or, you know, you mentioned that you know, performance marketing, advertising wasn't really something you, you invested in, but were there even other strategies, tactics, or channels that you that you thought were going to be big or that you wanted to invest a lot in, but then ended up really panning out into something that was more long-term? Yeah, so probably a lot of the paid ones. So your traditional social ads. Um, we also looked into sponsorships for a while. So sponsoring newsletters, sponsoring communities, sponsoring events, and those didn't, didn't really go as big as we, we thought they might. So that was one aspect of it. I'd say the other thing that evolved quite a bit was community for Buffer over time. I think we had a really a really strong community on Twitter. We had a Twitter chat that was really popular every week. And then as these social networks kind of evolved and changed, we recognized, you know, this might not be how community looks in 2018 the way it did in 2016 or in 2020 the way it did in 2018. Just things move so fast on social media, it's, it's hard to hard to keep the same thing going in the same way for so long. Right. And so community evolved for us a lot. It went from this Twitter space to a Slack space to a community platform. I think we're, I think Buffer is still evolving it to this day. And so that was one thing that changed quite a bit. We had maybe a three or four person community team and we were able to move those folks into other roles within the company um, and kind of reduce the, the number of people focused on community then. But I think community kind of ended up becoming this more organic thing for us and that, 
the folks in the community took it over rather than us needing to staff it ourselves and, and amplify it. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why don't you think that, um, that the traditional social ads and even like some of the sponsorships worked, was it more just like a direct kind of attributable ROI or was it more just like the feeling about, you know, uh, didn't align with your goals and how you, you know, their reach that you wanted to get or why didn't it yeah. pan out? I think part of it was ROI. Um, we didn't have the best process in place when we first started out. We would just send all traffic to the homepage and, you know, that's not the most ideal experience for folks. And so we didn't really have the system built in to, to make the most of it. I think Buffer is also unique in that we, we don't have a sales team. And so when we talk about average revenue per user, it's pretty low. And so we have to make sure we're our CAC and LTV are lining up in a, in a healthy way. And, and we just couldn't strike a right balance there. Mm. Um, I think, you know, reflecting back, honestly, I think some of these channels take time to set up too. And when you have a channel like paid, if it takes time to set up, you're going to be losing money on it for a while and you have to be okay with that. And I think mm. that was something we were unwilling to do or else something I was unable to recognize. I had to have that conversation proactively at first to, to really see if we could make it work. So um, might relate to kind of our investment philosophy too, of wanting to be more sustainable and careful with our spend. Right, right. Just a, a bit uh, kind of on the conservative side. One of the things mm -hmm. I think that you guys did a really good job pioneering, maybe um, sort of on purpose or maybe on accident, was this engineering as marketing idea. Uh, you yeah. have Stories Creator, Remix, Pablo, I think was one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. um, were those intentional kind of things or it was just like, hey, look at this fun new thing. Like, what should we do with it? And uh, <laughs> trying to make a marketing strategy out of it. Oh, no, those were intentional. Yeah, we, we loved... I mean, we love thinking them up and brainstorming them, but yeah, at the end of the day, we, we saw them as both awareness and acquisition plays. I think with the awareness side, when you have a product that is, is at a certain scope and scale, it's, it can be a bit tricky to innovate and experiment in, in new ways that don't carry a lot of risk with them. And so I think for us, we were like, oh, well, we can do this on the marketing side. Like we identified specific pain points that we had as social media marketers. One of the the beauties of Buffer is that like on the marketing team, you are your own customer in a way. And mm. so that was really helpful and useful for us. So we would identify these pain points and then realize, no, let's go build a solution for this. We think there's, you know, a market for this. We would do some research on it. And, and that kind of was the, the lean startup methodology spun forward a little bit. Like marketing will be the test case for this. We'll see if it sticks. If it sticks, maybe we'll incorporate it into the product long-term. Mm. So Pablo started that way. Stories creators started that way, Remix started that way. And then we would measure them based on, you know, how much awareness, how much acquisition do they bring in? They all have CTAs back to the the product itself. And so we can measure it all there. Um, and yeah, I, I think that the innovation of those keeps us in the conversation with, you know, social media moves fast. And so that's one way to stay lean and stay cutting edge. Hmm. What did you learn about hiring and leadership at, at your time? Again, starting so early and then, going, you know, growing with the company and eventually sort of moving up in the ranks, if you will, and growing out the team. And, um, because if you can, if you can talk about that, cause not everyone can say, you know, that they've built out a marketing team and especially that they've been with a, with a company so long to really see a lot of the different, uh, phases and, um, different people kind of come and go. And so curious if you can comment on that. Yeah, for sure. There's a couple of different ways that we grew the team. So one of them was, by changing roles internally. And so like I mentioned, some community folks came to marketing and kind of took different paths. And so 
that was fascinating. I, I'm really grateful for all the folks I, I got to work with who had the growth mindset and the openness and the curiosity to go and excel in these new areas. I think I learned a lot as a manager of how to best coach them and guide them into these different paths. Um, so that was that was one way the team grew was just kind of by people internally moving from role to role. And in terms of hiring, yeah, there's so many lessons I, I took away from that. Buffer does hiring. I think everyone does hiring uniquely. And so as I'm you know, beyond Buffer now and, and reflecting back on it, I'm seeing some of the differences that, that Buffer did versus other places that I've been and observed. And Buffer's process is you know, organized in such a way that you start on a certain day and there's different stages and a stage closes, you're on to the next stage. And by the end of a certain time period, there's typically a decision made. And I think I've been in other places where it's just kind of a, a constant river where you're always hiring. And, you know, when as soon as someone's in the pipeline, you talk to them and keep them moving and other people join at different stages. And so hmm. just seeing the differences there was really fascinating. Um, I think at Buffer, I appreciated the order of that. Um, for the... For the, for the applicant experience to a certain degree, you kind of know what to expect for having different people at different stages, all kind of all at the same point in time, you can compare and contrast a little, a little easier. And for me, one of the, the biggest lessons I took away from Buffer hiring was how to be more aware of my own biases in the process and how to make a, as much of a bias-free um, approach as possible. I, I still, I still can do a lot better there, but I think I'm much more aware of all the things than I was before joining Buffer. And so that was one of the things we tried to do was to make a diverse, equitable and inclusive hiring process and um, still lots of room to improve, but I, I was grateful for the strides we made on that front. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Here's now if you can speak a little bit to, uh, to Polly and the new experience. Um, yeah. Like what, what was it like being recruited to go elsewhere? <laughs> it's not a, again, <laughs> Uh, sort of having that transparent background and also being an open book and not everyone might be comfortable talking about it. And of course you don't have to share all the details, but um, really uh, coming up to, the, to a long tenure like buffer and then, you know, deciding where you're going to go next, you know, what was it like interviewing sort of starting to think about the process uh, and evaluating different companies? Yeah. Well, it took me almost a year end to end. So it was, a, it was a process. That's a, a good way of describing it. I think, there was that initial stage of, you know, I'm, I feel really proud of what I've accomplished at Buffer and you, you almost heads down so long in a certain place that when you do lift your head up, you realize, oh, there's lots of other things out here that might interest me here. Might, mm. I might have excitement toward them. And so it was never like me pushing away from Buffer. I think it was me being pulled in other directions, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so initially, yeah, when someone reaches out, I think that I always, there's always that little bit of, um, dopamine hit where you're like, oh, someone else thinks I can maybe do do this. I think you know, Buffer being really my first major test in the startup and tech scene, I think was there's always that slight bit of imposter syndrome and doubt of like, oh, can I actually do this elsewhere? Or was I, did I just catch lightning in a bottle in a way? And so I had to overcome that first stage of, yes, people do think I can do this. I had to practice my story too with with the different recruiters. So when mm -hmm. they would reach out, I'd, I would. You know, my story sounded so different at the start than it did um, closer to the end, just in terms of how how I tell the narrative about my career path and the reasons why I'm looking and what I'm looking for. There's, you know, at first I was just kind of bumbling through it and I'm sure they could tell. And then toward the end, I had a better, co more cohesive story that, that I think made sense <laughs> to me. 
Um, so that was part of it. And then I, I think, you know, starting to weigh these different options is, is a real challenge. I ended up using this spreadsheet to as quantifiably as possible, rank the different opportunities that I had in front of myself based on all these different characteristics. There's something very safe and easy in staying where you are and something attractive about that, especially for me, I tend to be a risk averse person. I have a family at home that I'm thinking of and kind of this, I, there's other many other factors in life I think that you you consider when you make moves like this. And so it's very easy to stay. It's very hard to leave and making that jump. I wanted to be as careful and cautious and disciplined as possible. And I think I realized close to the end, I was like, there's no, there's no guarantees with any of this. Like you just have to reach a point where you, you decide to jump and hopefully you land in a great spot. I, I, I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. The, the job search scoreboard is one of the most fascinating parts of the process to me. How did you come up with that? And there's also like a, a criteria, you know, of, I don't know if there's like 15 and sort of different bullet points of like things you figured out. These are the, the things that I'm looking for. These are the boxes I'm looking to check. Like how did you even come up with that list in the first place as well? Yeah, I was grateful to be turned on to that idea by someone. And so I, I kind of took their base template and, and recognized some things that were true of theirs that would also be true of mine. And so it started from there. Um, but then I, I think just reflecting on what gets me excited about an opportunity. So having having the privilege to be able to hear from a couple other companies, I would recognize in myself like, oh, I have anxiety about this company. Why is that? Well, it's because they have <laughs> like they have a a burn rate that they're working off of, or like they're going to run out of cash in a certain number of months. That makes me really nervous, mm. um, which is totally fine, by the way, if companies do that. I just hadn't come from that background, and so recognizing that was helpful. Um, recognizing that, you know, I want to be at a place where marketing is has a major seat at the table somewhere, and, and marketing is important for the next stage of this company's trajectory. Um, I think that was something I recognized. So a lot of it was, you know, being as as thoughtful and listening as as well as I could to myself throughout the process, the things that caught my ear, the things that didn't. Um, I've noticed that sometimes when I'm on LinkedIn and I see people post, I'm like, I have like a gut reaction to it of like, either like jealousy or inadequacy or <laughs> something like something very vulnerable like that. And I'm like, well, why do I feel that way? And it's, oh, it's because this person works at a category leader. Maybe I want to work at a category leader. Mm. Or this person is talking about going just crossing the 50 million error threshold. Like, oh, maybe that's what I want to do in my next step. And so just being more self-aware, I think, was really important for me throughout this process of recognizing, you know, of the of the millions of different factors in going somewhere, what are the ones that are going to matter most to me at the end of the day? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a great, great exercise. I'm going to link to uh, the scoreboard and the post where you kind of describe it uh, in the show notes, but I think it's a fascinating just a, a really good exercise. I mean, I think it's something that probably every single one of us could incorporate and across any role, you know, just really taking the time to think through it as well and, and design it for yourself. Right. And, and personalize it. Totally. Um, I'm curious if I can, if I can kind of bug you on a, a story that you, a story that you alluded to in one of your posts about sort of moving on from buffer and joining Polly, uh, where you talked about how you had an interview with dot, go. Um, is that a story that you could share about a sort of a fun experience or something interesting that you learned through the process? Yeah, that is, a, I think I can share that one. <laughs> um, I, so there's, I had a chance to make it through a few stages with a few different companies. So DuckDuckGo was one of them. Um, there were a couple other 
early stage startups that I was part of. And those, those processes are so interesting in that they vary wildly from one company to the next. Like one place you might start talking to the founder and have like three or four just random chats with them. And it feels like, what are we even talking about here? Other ones, it's like, <laughs> throw you straight into an exercise and it's just this enormous thing. And so um, with DuckDuckGo, it was straight into an exercise, which was kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for a, a brand leadership role. And I, you know, coming from Buffer, I came into that role with like this VP title. And I think what they were ultimately looking for was more of like a brand leadership or a stronger brand background. I think Buffer has a wonderful brand that I'm, I'm happy to have played a part in, but you know, di- I didn't have that in my title or we didn't have a formal brand process like you might see at a, a much bigger company. Um, and so I don't know that I had the best um, chances when I was at that exercise stage. And I, I think we we talked pretty openly about that throughout the process. And so it just kind of felt like, oh, what am I even doing here with <laughs> with like putting together this giant exercise that took me all weekend. And I think there were multiple moments of both in that experience and in other experiences where I was like, you know, looking for a new job is almost like a full-time job in and of itself. And I think I had to recognize that I'm, I enjoy this. I think it's, it's fun to get to, you know, put my, put my duck, duck, go hat on for a day or two or put, you know, any other a number of different hats on. And I'm going to learn a ton from this. Like hopefully I'll get feedback on this either way. And, you know, just going through this exercise is, is going to be, I'm going to be a better marketer at the end mm-hmm. of this. And so I don't think this turned into a very fun story, more like a life lesson story, but that was kind of my takeaway from all that was like, you know, I'm in it. I'm like, what is even happening here? And I think I had to have that moment of, of reflection of like, oh yeah, this is going to be valuable either way. Obviously it didn't work out. I, you know, I I don't even think I got feedback on that one. So that part didn't work out either, but um, it was fun, a fun exercise to do nonetheless. And and (laughs) something I carried with me throughout the rest of the process. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it's fun in hindsight. And, um, course there's that that growth mindset kind of shining through with everything's a learning lesson and uh you're glad to have gone through it, even though it's probably uncomfortable and awkward and feel like you know there's <laughs> imposter syndrome uh that that won't go away uh, it no, is it's so hard to hear no's throughout the process too it's like and it, and I, I say no all the time when i'm hiring people and so it's it's hard to be on both ends of it i yeah. think so having that empathy is is also something i had to remind myself of mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a big part of it. How how do you approach starting a new job? Um, do you have like a 30, 60 day, 90 plan? Do you have some sort of like framework or timeline that you work through? Is that something that sort of, you know, you cater with with your boss manager, you know, person that you report to, um, or is a little bit more autonomous and self-directed? Yeah, I do have a 30, 60, 90 plan. Um, the first 30 days are spent learning. The second 30 days are spent building and the third 30 days are spent delivering and so more or less that's kind of the the path for those first 90 days i think specifically things will differ based on the company and and what it looks like once you're in there Um, i also have this framework of kind of the different jobs that i want to be doing and the the different jobs that are required when i join and so oftentimes firefighting is one of the first things you have to do when you get on the job but you want to do less firefighting as time goes on Another thing you have to do when you first join is building the infrastructure for the place, especially if your brand, if it's like a net new role that you're jumping into. And so oftentimes when you start, there's a lot more work and effort put toward firefighting and infrastructure. I think you want to move that on that spectrum more to the side of experimentation 
and putting the fundamentals in place of your strategies and, and kind of your growth machines. And so that's where I hope the work evolves to. I think there's, you know, depending on when you join, there's going to be any, any random number of fires or infrastructure needs at first. And so those have to be the priorities, but hopefully by the 90 day mark or maybe around there, you're starting to lay some of those foundations. You're starting to experiment a bit more. Um, so those are generally the frameworks that I use. I, I would say at Poly, I had these grand visions going into it. I read the first 90 days, which is a, a mm. popular book for starting a new job. And boy, you just get in there and it's like, how do you even apply some of these things at a, at a startup in like this early stage growth stage startup when there's so much happening and so many, like everything's on fire, like not in a bad way. It's just kind of the, the state of things. And so I found that not everything applied in those frameworks and you kind of have mm. to be pretty nimble and flexible. And so the most important thing for me was just checking in regularly with my boss, the CEO, you know, what is important this week or this month or these are, these are my current priorities from what I heard last time we talked, are they still the, the biggest things on your mind? And that ended up being probably the most important thing I did much more so than having a strict plan to follow or a checklist to check off. Right. Right. Be more fluid with where the business is at, where people are at, sort of what's top of mind. Exactly. Um, I think that's a good important round. It's it's mo- it's mainly the the lesson of you know everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face just over and over again <laughs> in, in many different formats and variations. Uh, yeah. But it's great to hear, especially coming from you, sort of in this situation, that it still rings true. It still rings true. Getting punched in the face, <laughs> things are on fire. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. wild. I know all all sorts of. Uh, we need some different metaphors. Yeah. I know we need some more positive ones. Um, I'm curious why integrations and partnership marketing are top of mind for you right now. Um, is that something that you're working through with Polly or just something that sort of like fascinates you right now? But why, why are those two things or two strategies, um, like the, the things that are really top of mind? Yeah, they're, they're very much true of Polly's business. So Polly is an app built on teams and Slack. And so, you know, partnerships, integrations, that's like the whole business is, mm. it's the core of how we work. I think in experiencing that, I recognize that was also true of buffer. Like we were built on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and Pinterest. And it's such a unique, it seemed like such a unique way of taking a product to market, but I I think I'm starting to realize it's maybe a much more common way of taking a product to market or a much more common distribution strategy than I gave it credit for. Um, One of the the pillars of product-led growth is to distribute your product where your users live. And I think that is true of the ways that you think about integrations and partnerships. I think for Buffer that also extended into having a Chrome extension and having a mobile app. I think for Poly, it could be, you know, further integration plays um, and across all sorts of different tools. And so just recognizing that has been really, really great. And I think I've recognized also the, it's almost like a shortcut in a way where if you are a new product, you can build on these giant ecosystems that already have all this built-in distribution and awareness and make Mm. the most of those relationships to really get a leg up. You're not starting from zero anymore. You're starting from you know, 50 million or something, however, however big these ecosystems are. And so that's, that's such an advantage if you can play that, play your cards right with it. And so that's kind of why it's been top of mind for me lately. Yeah. Well, what do you feel like the playbooks are to actually take advantage of that strategy? Um, I think a lot of people would think, you know, partnerships and integrations, like, okay, I just, I build the integration and, you know, I get it live and I make the blog post to announce it. And then I call it a day. Uh, is that it? Or is there more to it? Or how are you thinking through it? Yeah, that is the first step for sure. <laughs> I, think, I think the the next steps beyond that, 
you know, what does your relationship look like with that partner? So we have business development relationships with, with our different partners and they can sometimes surface different upcoming features to you. They can give you hints on how to optimize your listing and how to rank in different app stores. Some app stores have different promotion potentials. So like, I guess maybe the, the iOS app store comes to mind. You can promote yourself in the different search listings there. I think there's also this kind of larger exposure to how you think about taxonomy within a marketplace ecosystem. So you can align yourself both with your product's value, but also with, you know, maybe alongside some other really popular places and products within the ecosystem too. You can spin it outward from from the partnership into co-marketing with fellow partners, fellow apps. Um, there's there's lots of different ways you can kind of use use that existing partnership as a business unit of its own and then apply all your different marketing tactics to that. And so you think of co-marketing, you think of, you could run ads to your listing, you could do all these different things. So yeah, just getting up there is definitely the first step, but it's not going to be successful if that's all there is to it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. One of the other things I really wanted to get your take on since, uh, again, it is sort of a rare opportunity to be able to be a part of and also see sort of ground floor, what it's like, you know, going from uh, sort of zero to a significant, significant amount of revenue, you know, possibly, you know, eight figures, Plus, um, what what does it take to do that? First of all, uh, to really go from you know small amount of revenue to a large amount of revenue, we'll say, and and also how does how does marketing change? What the business needs change as you hit those different milestones? Yeah, what does it take? So, I think it takes a unique mix of how you think about distributing your product, how you think about differentiating your product. And for me, differentiation, a lot of that comes down to brand. And so initially you're doing things, I guess, I guess the way it evolves then is initially you're doing things just to get dollars, like anything, anything to bring dollars in you'll do. And so you're doing things that don't scale. You're doing things that might be very experimental and and invalidated just to see, you know, throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. I think that is necessary and useful at a certain stage. Um, once you pass a certain stage, like I think for buffer, maybe between that five and $10 million stage, you start to, you start needing to systemize more things. You start need to be more thoughtful about achieving scale with both your tactics. So how do you, you know, take this content machine that it's me, Kevin writing four articles a week, like that's not going to last too long. Um, how do you take that and spin it forward into something that can be sustainable and can, can scale on its own. If you think about the brand you're doing, you know, 20 different brand things that sound and feel and look different than each other because each of them brings in a little bit of things today. How do you corral all that into one unified voice and unified narrative so that um, the work really spins off from itself and has this halo effect that's going to bring in more folks long-term. And so that's, that's one way I think about it. I think another lens that has been useful is, is thinking of it through different growth loops. And so are there different loops that you can find and identify with your business today that the output of those loops. So if it's acquiring users, the output is you know having more usage. If it's acquiring customers, the output would be more money. And then reinvest that usage or that money or that activity to get your next users. And so you kind of build this sustaining, this self-sustaining loop that ideally will scale over time. And so for Buffer, part of that was content. The more people we brought in with content, the more customers we got, the more money we had, which we could then invest back into content. We also had a really powerful one with word of mouth. And so the more people we brought in, they had a great experience. They would go tell others, which would bring in more people and just kind of spun, spins that flywheel effect. I think at Poly, we have that to a degree with the viral loop. So people use Poly. Other people see that Poly is being used. They go out and install Poly or try Poly themselves. 
send a poly into the into a Slack or team space. Other people get exposed to it and it spins like that. And so if you can find these repeatable patterns early on, I think those are really powerful as you start, but they can also scale efficiently and effectively too. And so ideally, you know, there's a, a list of them out there. Um, if you can find one that works for you, that's typically the best thing. And then you can, you know, make the most of that, optimize that and kind of go from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'd love to take a look at your personal SWI file as it will, as, as it were. And, uh, sure. I don't know, get it insight into, you know, what does Kevin really look at, uh, for marketing examples, for campaigns he thinks are awesome companies that are doing it really well. I'll kind of like leave it open to interpretation. We could go all the way as granular as like a specific ad landing page or template, or, you know, all the way as sort of broad, it's just like a company or, you know, something, you know, some sort of strategy in general. Um, but there are, are there a few that come to mind for you? Yeah, there's, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> So when I saw just the other day, I was I was on Typeform's pricing page. I was starting a Typeform, and their pricing page was so unique. They have three different price plans, and their cheapest plan is positioned as the same price as their medium plan, and they're both $35 a month. And the, the only difference is that one is when you pay monthly and one is when you pay annually. Hmm. And I thought that was such a refreshing and unique way of showing off the price. So basically, you're looking at three different options. Two of them look like the exact same price, but one looks like a ton more features and functionality. Um, but you're, you'd be on an annual plan is the only difference. And so typically you see like three different prices or everything is annual or everything is monthly and there's a toggle. So I just love the creativity of that, thinking outside the box a little bit and, and choosing to align your prices in such a way that you position it and package it so that it will attract people to a certain plan that will drive mm. usage to that plan. I think sometimes you divorce kind of that customer experience from the monetization strategy, but it seems like at least at Typeform, they are considering all these things in one bucket, which is awesome. Right. That's a really interesting one. I, I had, I think I'd seen that in passing. I'm a Typeform user myself, but I don't visit the pricing page all that often, Right. but I had seen it somewhere and I, I know they've been doing a lot of different changes. Um, but I like that point of, uh, sort of what do I, what do we really want to call attention to on this page instead of just like the, you know, brass tacks, you know, technically sufficient <laughs> communication of the of the pricing yeah absolutely i think another one that comes to mind i just saw that ghost launched their i think it's ghost 4.0 yeah now, and so they I, you know love ghost they're one of the the transparent folks like like we love and one of the things that caught my eye this time around i love that they've evolved the business so i think now there's all sorts of newsletter and subscription and membership options to it they also have a um, a really robust theme marketplace. They have a robust, I think it's called an expert community now. And that's kind of the thing that catches my eyes is this idea of an expert community. Mm. And so I've seen this, you know, if you go to HubSpot, there's HubSpot experts. I think Webflow has experts. Like any of these technologies for building something, they've kind of created this ecosystem, this marketplace for experts that almost become advocates, become like a sort of community for your brand. And I think that's, that's such a powerful potentially powerful segment and audience and channel for you. Um, of course they get something out of it too. And so it's a nice kind of serendipitous relationship from that point of view. Um, but you're activating some people who are going to be great brand champions for you and, and potentially helping to scale your business at the same time. So yeah, a big fan of that. If you can make it work yeah. for your business. I, I love that strategy. In fact, um, the, the Shopify experts was one of the first time I think that I, I saw that sort of play out. And we sort of started to experiment and see if that had legs with bare metrics. But I think one of the things I really realized was that 
uh, as the most legs is something that has a lot to do with creation and sort of, you know, that has a lot of like nuance and possibly even some technical complexity to it. Uh, yes. and so it probably doesn't work for everyone. Right. But, um, but it, it's a, such a fantastic tool and strategy when you can make it work if it's appropriate for your business. Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe the last one I'll mention, there's a, a new tool called Endgame. So like Avengers Endgame, hmm. Endgame. And what it does is it's basically like a product qualified lead modeling software. And I think the, the thing that catches my eye with it, I, I love new products, of course. And so that's one aspect of it. They have a cool landing page, which is one aspect of it. I think kind of the, the bigger shift that I see with, with this product is there's a ton of need for this connection between or I guess there's this element of product-led growth, which is you're bringing in so many, so much great volume at the top, and how do you identify potential fits there that would be good to talk to sales? I think that's a very tricky process today. It's either a very manual process where you're just kind of stitching together these random formulas and, and qualification metrics and hoping that it works, um, or what Endgame is, gonna, is purporting to do is to really stitch it together in a, in a very seamless, automated way. And I think that is... There's potentially a lot of power there just in what that can unlock for a business and how you can kind of connect product-led growth to these larger sales motions that tend to drive a lot of the bigger businesses when you get to certain amounts of revenue. So excited to see how that space continues to evolve too. Yeah, yeah, another another awesome example. Well, final question for you and I'll let you go. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What, what comes to mind? Yeah, everything is marketing. Um, I think I, my mind goes to the storytelling aspect. And so, you know, I'm telling my son a story about something that happened to me today. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pitching him something. I'm pitching him this idea, this concept that I'm trying to get across with storytelling. I think that feels like marketing to a degree. I think as we go into different friendships and relationships, that feels like we are bringing a certain perspective to our stories that we're telling there, which can feel a bit like marketing. So mm. You know, marketing is everything. I think the stories that we tell can be everything in a way too. And so that that tends to be um, the the lens that I see marketing through, broadly speaking, and then, you know, applied to everything. I think it, it fits there also. Oh, amazing. Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing everything today. And, and uh, it's been awesome. Of course. Thanks, Corey. It's been great. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on the show and being so transparent. Make sure to check out Kevin's newsletter and website at kevinlee.com and also check out Polly. If you can spare a quick moment of your time, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything and let him know what you learned as well. I'm sure he'd really appreciate that. To wrap up, here are a couple of my takeaways. One, I love the job search scoreboard that he used to evaluate new opportunities. When you really nail down what's important to you and put a criteria to how you evaluate new jobs, it makes the process a lot easier. Two, integrations as marketing is a really underrated but key marketing channel, especially for software businesses. Since Polly is built on Slack, that's obviously top of mind for him. But oftentimes I think we just go through the motions with integrations without thinking about how to actually turn it into a mutually beneficial relationship. Three, Kevin has such a unique perspective with Buffer, given he was there for so long and saw the company grow a ton. What stood out to me was how much they evolved and continued to adapt to what was working, what wasn't working, and always try new things. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. 
Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.